0: Well, I'd invite you to take your Bibles and open, if you would, to the Gospel of John and chapter 13 this morning. And we'll pick it up in verse 31 today. Before we go to the Word, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we do thank You for the privilege and the blessing we have as a church to be here today, for the blessing and privilege we have as a church to partner with others around the world who are going to places where we cannot be and share the gospel of Jesus. We pray especially this morning for the Phillips and ask your blessing upon them. We ask that you would provide the visas that they need so that they can be back in the country where they are burdened uh, and have such a heart for the people there to share the gospel with people, to bring folks to Christ, to disciple and nurture the young believers there. Thank you for their faithful labors over all these years and the partnership we've had. May you use us to be a blessing and an encouragement to them. And Father, we thank you for your word. Now we have this opportunity to open the word of God, the written word that you have given to us. You have preserved it through the centuries given through Your Spirit and through the human instrument, and yet it is the divine Word of God, authoritative, inspired. And so, Father, may we listen. May we hear Your voice this morning, and may it change us. We not leave here the same as when we came. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. This is Piper. Piper is the newest addition to the spa household. She's been in our home for two, three months now, and I think that we're kind of adapting to her world. I'm not so sure she's learning to adapt to ours as much, but uh, we're getting there. She is at her happiest when she is a blur of fur, chasing after a tennis ball around the backyard. She loves to play. Sadly, however, I've come to realize that Piper has a hearing problem. She does. She can hear the crinkle of a treat bag at a hundred yards. She can hear the softest footstep or the... the the least little floorboard creak, and she knows somebody's moving around the house. She can hear outside. She can hear the faintest dog bark a mile off. She can hear birds in the sky, anything that sounds unusual. She'll hear a helicopter in the distance. But somehow, our dear little pup, when she's five feet away, and I am calling her name, sometimes she is totally deaf. (laughs) Yes, she has a case of selective hearing. And I bring that up this morning because as we come here, again, back to the upper room in John 13 here, what we discover is that these disciples of Jesus also have a tendency to latch on to things that they hear Jesus say that they love, and a tendency somehow to miss and to ignore and to turn a deaf ear to things that they don't want to hear. And in that way, they are very much like us, aren't they? How we tend to hear some things that Jesus says, we read the Word of God, we see things that God says in His Word that we like, and we grasp those things, we grab those things, we, we put them on bumper stickers and write them in, in our notebooks and we put them to memory and we love those things. But then there are things that God says that we go, well, um, la, 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 can't hear you, can't hear you. We have a tendency to do that, don't we? Well, we're in week 10 of a study here going through John chapter 13 through 17. Five chapters here where in these chapters, roughly, by the way, 25% of the Gospel of John, John devotes these, this section of Scripture to the last hours of Jesus with his disciples before he is arrested. John obviously views these hours as... Significant and impactful because He devotes such space to it. Significant and impactful to these disciples as they are about to enter the storm of their life. But also He views them as significant and impactful for us today as followers of Jesus. It is a rich section of Scripture and we do well to dig into it. I only wish we had about 20 weeks instead of 10 Because there's so much here. In these final critical hours before the cross, Jesus is working to prepare his unaware disciples for this great storm they are about to endure. We have seen that the central theme of these chapters is Jesus' love for his own it's what it, it begins with in verse 1 of chapter 13. It's how it ends in chapter 17. And it's filled throughout with Jesus displaying His love for His own. And so as we, as His own, as those who name the name of Christ, who are following Him, as we read these chapters, we need to see through throughout the love of Christ for us. We've seen how He... Amazingly demonstrated his love in washing these disciples' feet. We've seen how he even expressed his love towards his betrayer, Judas, and towards the soon denier, Peter, and towards all of these disciples whom he will later will say that they are going to abandon him, and they do. But we pick up the story here in verse 31. Of John chapter 13. When he, that is Judas, had gone out, Jesus said, now is the son of man glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. Judas the betrayer has left the building. And Jesus in his love is trying to tell these beloved disciples another big point, but their selective hearing has them perplexed and bewildered and unable to grasp much of what Jesus is saying. Now, I'm going to read some more verses from beyond our passage today, but in this whole section of John uh, 13 to 15. And I want to see if you can pick up this big point that Jesus wants to get across this night. Listen carefully. It's rather subtle. Okay, John 14, verse 2. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I am going there to prepare a place for you. John 14, verse 18, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. John 14, verse 25, These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. Verse 28, I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced, but because I am going to the Father. Verse 30 of John 14, I will no longer talk much with you. Chapter 16, verse 5, but now I am going to Him who sent me. Verse 7, nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. Verse 16, a little while and you will see me no longer, and again a little while and you will see me. Now, much you might not have understood there, but did you get the big point? What's the big point? Jesus is... He's going away. You know, we may not be the sharpest tools in the shed, but we got it. Jesus is trying to get across this point. His time with them is short. Matter of fact, it's, the clock has ticked down, maybe just six hours, five hours. and he's going to leave. Jesus is going away. He will leave them. He reminds them, by the way, that they heard him say this before. In verse, verses 31 and 32, Jesus reminds them and he heard this is not a new, new truth. It's not a new, a new statement. Some six months before this, at the Feast of Booths in the fall, Jesus there declared to the, the Jews in the temple and the Jewish leaders who were there and the disciples were there listening, Jesus said, John chapter 7, verse 33, I will be with you a little longer and then I am going to Him who sent Me. You will seek Me and will not find Me. and Where I am, you cannot come. He came back the next day and made a similar statement recorded in John chapter 8. And he said to them again, again to the Jews and the Jewish leaders who were there with the disciples listening on, I am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. This night in the upper room so far has not going, gone very well for the disciples. It has not been the Passover feast, the Passover party that they were hoping for, that they were expecting. It began by taking a rather embarrassing turn as they gathered in the room and began to talk. And, and first, the disciples are there almost immediately. They begin getting into a little banter and a little argument and dispute about who among them is the greatest. And Jesus gets up and begins to wash their feet because they were all too proud and too self-absorbed to take care of what was an obvious oversight. And then Jesus had announced that there was a betrayer among them. And then Luke's Gospel records that during the meal, Jesus kept making these Statements that we might think were morbid or morose. Jesus says, I will not eat this meal with you again until the kingdom. Jesus said, this is my body for you. This cup is my blood. The blood of the new covenant shed for you. And now Jesus says, I'm going away. And you can't come. You know, I think they have a pretty good inkling what Jesus is talking about. I think the clues aren't that subtle. (laughs) I think they get it, but they don't want to face it. They don't want to deal with it. And so... Because it's it's too frightening, it's too upsetting, it's too personally disastrous. If Jesus is gone, what does that mean to us in our last three years? And what is, you know, have we been wrong? And so rather than deal with that, they're practicing this selective hearing. (laughs) Jesus is talking and they're going, la, 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 can't hear you. It's the elephant in the room. Again, later this evening, John chapter 16, verse 5, Jesus says this, Now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you asks me, where are you going? Jesus is saying, I've been saying now, this is like time number 10, I'm going away. And none of you are asking, where are you going? His point is, you're not asking not because you haven't heard me, but because you don't want to know. You don't want the answer. You're tuning this out. Now, reality is, somebody had asked early on. It was Peter. We read the verses last week, but it's, it's just following this where we are. Down in chapter 13, where Peter asks in verse 36, Lord, where are you going Peter started questioning. And as he did so, he said, Jesus said, well, where I'm going, you can't come. And Peter said, well, Lord, why can't I come? I'll follow you anywhere, even to death. I will die with you, Jesus. I will die for you. There's nowhere I won't go for you. And Jesus, you recall, we read this passage last week. Jesus said, Peter, before this night is over, before the cock crows, in the morning, you will deny me three times. Peter really meant it when he said, Jesus, I will follow you anywhere. Jesus, I will die for you. He meant it and his, and his pride is, I think, hurt here, my guess, because Peter just goes dark. He goes silent. He doesn't ask anything else. He doesn't say anything else for a good long while till they get out of the upper room. And I think because Peter goes silent on this, everybody else goes silent too. We're not going there. One more person mentions Jesus going away. That's Thomas. We'll see in a few minutes. But he doesn't ask, where are you going, Jesus? He just admits, hey, we don't know where you're going. What they've heard so far is not what they want to hear. You see, some three years earlier, these men left everything. They basically walked away from jobs, from From family, they basically walked away from their lives to follow Jesus. They tied up everything that they had in one basket here. They put it all there in Jesus. They had come to believe, as Peter declared so and proclaimed so clearly in Matthew chapter 16, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. They have said and declared with their lives there is no place we would rather be, nothing more important that we can do with our lives than follow Jesus. He is Messiah King. He is the Son of the living God. And they've been waiting and looking for Jesus to set up His kingdom as the Messiah is prophesied to do. And then... Sunday, four days before this, as they are approaching Jerusalem, suddenly crowds start to gather. People start assembling by the sides, by the hundreds, then by the thousands, then by tens of thousands of people screaming, Hosanna! Hosanna! Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord as they welcome Jesus into Jerusalem as Messiah. And we can only imagine the disciples are going, Yeah! Yeah! This is what we've been waiting for. This is why we signed on. Jesus is the Messiah and people are recognizing it. This is it. The kingdom's coming. And Jesus gets into Jerusalem. And from the very beginning, that Sunday, there's confrontation with the religious leaders. Several days of that. Rather than the religious leaders being won over, even as Jesus countered all of their, all of their attacks and all of their arguments, and He won the day, and with truth, yet, the religious leaders did not embrace Him. But despite that, the disciples' hopes are high. Even as we said, as this evening began, they were there arguing about who's the greatest. Why? Because they want to know who gets the best spot in the kingdom. They're looking for the kingdom. And so there's no place in their thinking for Jesus to say, hey, guys, I'm leaving. And there's certainly no place in their thinking for Jesus to die. So what do they do with what Jesus is saying? La, 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 not listening. Let me ask you this morning, what do you do in life? What are you supposed to do? What ought we to do when life isn't going the way it should? When life isn't going right, meaning, in other words, when life isn't going according to our plan. And we all have our plan for life, right? Here's what my life is supposed to look like. And our plan for our life doesn't usually include things like, you know, sickness, cancer, death of a loved one, loss of a job, a marriage in trouble, rebellious children. And we could add a thousand things to our list of things that don't belong in our life, right? When they show up, we say something's gone wrong. What do we do when life isn't going right? It's not the main point of this passage. The main point I'm talking through is the, the story of what happens here. But in the process of this, what I observe and what I see is some things that we ought to do when life isn't going right according to our standards, according to our plan. First thing is this. This passage provides, I think, three good answers for things we ought to do. When life isn't going right. First is this. Remember, God is at work. God is sovereign, meaning He is in charge. He's in control over everything. And He is working His plan. His good and righteous plan. I want to go back to a verse we read, but a verse that probably what, actually two verses, but as we read them, you probably might, your mind is spinning and smoking a little bit. Notice, go back to verse 31. When he, Judas, had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Amen. Let's go home. That's just clear as mud, isn't it? You have to really think through that one a lot. But Here's one thing you don't have to think through very clearly to know. Notice that there's an awful lot of glory in those two verses, isn't there? Five times it's talking about glory. Someone's getting glorified here through this. And what is it? See, it's a statement the disciples won't understand. They won't be able to process this till much later. But see, Judas had gone out. Judas just walked out the door. And Jesus says... There's glory coming. What he means is this. Judas is now in his way to betray Jesus. And the wheels are set in motion that will inevitably move Jesus to the cross. From a human standpoint, from a human point of view, what is about to happen to Jesus is the ultimate disgrace. What is about to happen to Jesus is the ultimate humiliation. What is about to happen to Jesus is the ultimate defeat. But Jesus here looks past the suffering. He looks past the humiliation to the cross. And there He sees glory. You wonder, how does He do that? See, the point is that Jesus' death is going to bring glory to Him and it's going to bring glory to the Father in new and magnificent and in unimaginable ways. Because, you see... God is glorified when God is known. The more we know of God, the more we can glorify Him. And the the more glory He receives. And what happens on the cross is that the love, the heart of God is displayed in ways never understood, never imagined, and never seen the cross reveals, as nothing else could, the love of God. As I quoted Romans 5:8 earlier, that God demonstrates His own love for us in this: while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In those few words is packed wonder and mystery that will consume us through eternity. Why does God love us that much? And so, as Paul writes in Philippians 2, he says, Jesus is now exalted to the highest place, given the name above every name. It is the name of Jesus. Every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The Father and the Son were exalted by His humiliation even to the point of death on the cross where He bore our sin." What does this have to do with us and when life isn't going right according to our plan? What's this? I get it. Often life seems out of control. When you get that phone call, when you get that letter, when you get that pink slip, when whatever it is happens, it seems like God must have just taken a day off. And everything has just fallen into chaos in your life. But nothing could be further from the truth. God took the deepest, darkest day in human history and He shows us here it was all His plan to bring about the greatest glory. And if God can do that with the cross of Christ, may I suggest that He will do that with whatever situation you are facing in your life, if you are going through difficult times right now. And so what do you do when life isn't going right? Step back and remember, God is at work. Claim the promise that the Scripture makes in Romans 8, 28, and we know that in all things God works for the good for those who love Him who have been called according to His purpose. If you're a child of God, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, He promises that in every situation, in everything, He will work for His glory and for your good. It's a promise you can take to the bank. There's a second thing we ought to do when we when life isn't going right by our standards And that is, we find it in verse 1 of chapter 14, where he says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. Instead of worrying, he says, instead of having troubled hearts, instead of fretting, instead of being anxious, instead of being afraid, instead of being depressed, Jesus says, Believe in God, believe also in me. Trust Jesus. By the way, some people have said that in that Jesus doesn't never claim to be God in the Bible. Well, he does many times. This is one of them. When Jesus says, believe in God, believe also in me, this is nothing but a claim to equality with God. He is God. You believe in God, believe also in me. But Jesus says, you believe God, you trust Him, trust Me, because I am Him. He's saying, put your concerns upon Him and leave them there. We have, as Hebrews 4 says, a priest who empathizes with us. He understands our feeling. He's walked in our shoes without sin But He knows how we feel. We can trust His care for us. As Peter writes in 1 Peter 5, 7, he says, cast all your anxiety upon Him because He cares for you. We don't need to worry. We don't need to fret. He cares for us. And He is, as God, He is fully able to do everything that is needed to care for us. There's nothing beyond His love and nothing beyond His power. Trust Jesus. Third thing we ought to do when life isn't going right by our reckoning. Jesus continues in chapter four, 14, verse 2. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself that where I am there you may be also. The third thing that we need to do is focus on heaven. We need to live with heaven in view. He says, he lets us know here heaven is a real place. It is the Father's house. It's the place where, where God, the Father, lives. He dwells. But what's interesting about that is we go back to John chapter 1, verse 12, and what we read there is this. He says that to all who did receive Him, talking about Jesus, who believed on His name, He gave the right to become children of God. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you are a child of God. Now, Jesus is saying the Father's house, He's talking about the Father's house, and He's saying that By believing in Him, you become children of God. Then whose house is it? It's our house. The Father's house is our house too. Matter of fact, it's a a house that not only is His house, but He's got places for us there. He says, in my Father's house, there are many dwelling places, many rooms. King James said mansions. I doubt that they're big, you know... 60 acre spreads with big columned houses or whatever, that type of mansion. But they're mansions, meaning it's a, it's a room, it's a dwelling place, it's near God. That makes it prime real estate. Here's the point. The point is, there's a place for you. It's your house too. It's my house too. The point is, this world isn't our home when we become followers of Jesus Christ. The scripture says our citizenship has been transferred to heaven. And that's what Jesus is saying here. You've got a home in heaven in the Father's house. And Jesus is saying, I'm going there now to get that place ready for you. He's been doing that for about 2,000 years now. I think that means it's going to be pretty special. Jesus is personalizing and customizing it. The one who knows us, who knows the number of hairs on our head, I think, is getting those rooms ready exactly for each one of us. We'll walk into it and say, it's perfect. Absolutely perfect. There's so much more about that, but here's the big point. Jesus says, I'm leaving, but I am coming back. To take you to be with me. And the point is, we'll never have to be separated again. It's forever. It's good. You know, so much of the time when we're traveling, we're trying to go somewhere special. Well, let me just put it this I'll, I'll just say, let's say you love Colorado. You love the hiking, you love the skiing. Colorado is awesome. If you're gonna to get to Colorado from St. Louis, you gotta drive through Kansas. You ever been to Kansas? Kansas is what you endure to get to Colorado. No offense, those of you from Kansas. And if you're watching from Kansas, then you know what I'm talking about. Ah. (laughs) Truth is, I grew up in Texas, and West Texas is no better. Just honest truth. But Kansas spit the illustration. You know, my point is this. Jesus is saying, live with heaven in view. When we live with heaven in view, the stuff of this earth, the problems of this earth, the sufferings of this earth, the trials of this earth, they aren't such a big deal. Two reasons. They're only temporary. And Jesus is saying you got a guaranteed spot in heaven. And you know, when when our end destination is glorious and guaranteed, we can put up with almost anything. Can't we? Whatever you're facing right now, if heaven is your destination, getting there makes everything here worthwhile. Which raises one big question. How do I know that I'm going to heaven? Verse 4. Jesus said, and you know the way to where I'm going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? He doesn't ask Jesus where he's going. He just says, Jesus, I'm not asking, but we don't know. And if we don't know where you're going, how can we know the way? And Jesus I love that he asked the question because Jesus gives a beautiful answer, an answer we need so much. Thomas hasn't figured out Jesus' talk about heaven, but we know Jesus' talk about heaven. And Jesus is going to tell us, how do you know you're getting to heaven? Can you know you're going to heaven? I guarantee if you go out today and you start asking people out there, do you believe in heaven? Yeah. How do you get there? you will find very few people who know. But Jesus tells the answer right here. There it is, verse 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Me. The answer to how do you know you're getting to heaven? How can you get to heaven? The answer is Jesus. Jesus. And Jesus makes four absolute and exclusive statements about Himself. When He makes absolute and exclusive statements, it means something. It means we can look at those statements and we say either He is or He isn't. If He is them, we can believe Him. If He's not these things, then we write him off. And Jesus right there draws a line in the sand and says, You need to choose about Jesus. Don't play games with Jesus. He is either real or He's fake. He is either the Son of God or an impostor. He is a Savior or He is useless. Which is He? Jesus says here, I am the way. He doesn't say, I am a way. I am one of many ways. Any religion will do. Just be sincere. He says, I am the way. He says, I am the truth. We live in a world where they say there is no absolute truth. There's your truth and my truth and his truth and her truth and their truth and and whatever. And Jesus says, no. Truth is very narrow. It is either true or false. And he says, "I am the truth." And Jesus says, "I am the life." Jesus is the only source of eternal life. John 11:26. "I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. There's resurrection. John chapter 3, verse 16 says, For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him will not perish, but have everlasting life. He has said it positively, now He says it negatively. Just to make sure it's absolutely crystal clear. He says, no one comes to the Father. No one gets to heaven except through Me. There is no way to heaven except Jesus Christ. John chapter 3, verse 18, just two verses down from verse 16. He says, whoever believes in Him in Jesus is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Jesus in the Bible could not be clearer. You can know that you have a future in heaven. Guaranteed. It's not about how many good works you do. It's not about doing enough good works. It's not about joining the right church. You know, get your membership in at the Chapel of Lake and we'll get you an inside track and you'll get into heaven. It's not about giving money to some preacher somewhere. The Bible could not be clearer. Salvation, heaven, is a gift from God that can only be received by putting your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who gave His life on the cross and paid there the penalty of our sin as God poured out all the wrath of His righteous anger upon our sin on Jesus there. Putting our faith in Him who rose from the dead which was God's stamp of approval, the, the sacrifice was sufficient. If you're here this morning, if you're watching online, you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, I urge you, I call you, Jesus calls you, trust in Him. If you're listening this morning, you're already trusting Jesus Christ as your Savior This passage stands as a great and valuable and essential reminder. A reminder of the urgency and the priority and the great privilege of our mission which Jesus left for us to do. Apart from Jesus Christ, people have no hope of heaven. And Jesus has committed to us the ministry of reconciliation. God, making His appeal to man, be reconciled to Him through Jesus Christ. He's appointed us to be His mouthpieces. How we need to be busy about the work. Praying, giving, going, speaking, sharing the good news of Christ. All of that in those few words from Jesus. Let's pray. Father, what important, important words are here. For one thing, there may be someone within the sound of my voice who has yet to put their faith and trust in Christ. They now have heard the good news of Jesus. They have heard how You loved us so much even while we we were sinners. God became man. Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus, the Son of God, came to pay the price that we might have life and heaven through Him. May they put their trust in You even now. Father, all of us who name the name, we confess to You even right now how often we get sidetracked on things that are so unimportant. How often we get wrapped up in the fact that Life isn't going right. It's not going according to our plan. Not going according to what we want. And we forget to ask, what are you wanting? How can we serve you where we are in the situations that we are in? And we simply bring our troubles to you and place them in your hands and let you deal with those. And we ask, what can I do now? Father, may we be... Busy and may we be effective in the ministry of the gospel which You have given to us. Both for Your honor and for the good and the glory of Your kingdom. For the good of Your church. And for our own good as well. We ask these things. Amen.